Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. We are using some of the strongest measures Canada has ever seen. On this edition of Primetime Politics, the Prime Minister ratchets up Canada's sanctions against the regime in Iran. We'll look at the new measures and we'll speak to Canada's Immigration Minister. And I pledge to you tonight, I will not let you down. Alberta has a new Premier designate, Daniel Smith, a political expert, discusses what it might mean for Alberta and for the country. Canada's economy stopped three months of job losses with a turnaround in September. But what does it mean? How does it all fit into a possible recession and the upcoming interest rate hikes? And we start with that announcement by Prime Minister Trudeau of the ramping up of sanctions against the Iranian regime. For weeks, Iranians have been protesting in the streets against the Islamic Revolution's so-called morality police, with hundreds injured and scores killed by authorities. And for several weeks here in Ottawa, the federal opposition parties have been pressing the Prime Minister to act. On Friday afternoon, Justin Trudeau announced new measures. The choice we've made and that we're announcing today that we're moving forward on is to invoke measures that haven't been used since Bosnian war crimes or since uh, the genocide in Rwanda to ensure that there is no doubt that the Iranian regime receives the strongest pushback from Canada that we possibly can that we move forward on limits and penalties for well over 10,000 members of the Iranian leadership and military forces, and that we ensure that Canadians, including Canadians of Iranian descent, are not vulnerable to uh, foreign interference by uh, the Iranian regime. Many of the sanctions against the Iranian regime will be implemented through Canada's immigration laws. Joining me now is Sean Fraser, the federal immigration minister. Uh, Minister Fraser, thanks for taking the time. My pleasure to be with you, as always. Thank you for having me. Okay, well, let's start with this announcement by the prime minister. These sanctions, uh, the majority of the measures are under the Immigration Refugee uh, Protection Act. Prime Minister says they will prevent up to 10,000 members of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps from ever entering Canada. Uh, That's under your legislation. Can you tell us any more about how that will work? Uh, Yeah, I can. So this is not an often used uh, provision of the Immigration Refugee Protection Act. Uh, We've been looking for different ways we can respond to demonstrate uh, just how seriously uh, we're taking uh, not only the uh, recent events surrounding the uh, death of uh, Masa Amini, uh, but the uh, repression of of women and the acts of terrorism committed by the Iranian government uh, in the past, uh, the shooting down of like PS752. Uh, So we got to work to try to identify the different uh, strategies we could employ uh, to demonstrate that we're taking this issue seriously and and are prepared to deny entry to uh, potentially in excess of 10,000 senior officials, not just with the IRGC. Uh, One of the uh, strengths of the uh, uh, approach that we've taken is that we have the ability to uh, loop in senior officials in the entire Iranian regime for uh, this extraordinary uh, uh, gross and uh, uh, violation of human rights and, and terrorist activity. Okay. Um, um, the, 
Uh, briefly though, um, why did it take so long and why did you choose this method and not declaring them uh, a criminal uh, terrorist organization under the criminal code? Well, when you look at the uh, powers that are available under the criminal code, uh, there's some potentially very severe consequences for people who are not complicit with the IRGC's uh, uh, bad actions over many years. Uh, there's actually Iranian Canadians uh, who uh, are, are in Canada today uh, that uh, could potentially be connected to people who are uh, who are, uh, conscripted into the IRGC. If you list members of the IRGC under the criminal code, it has the potential to render inadmissible family members who could okay. be in Canada today who have nothing to do with the IRGC. The strength uh, of the approach that we've chosen to take allows us to render inadmissible significant numbers uh, of people across the regime, including within the IRGC, but it also allows me to create public policies to carve people out of such a designation uh, if they are people who were not complicit, if they're human rights okay. defenders who were conscripted into the IRGC, uh, IRGC who may have actually deserted. It's a more nimble approach. It's actually more broad-based in terms of its implications for members of the Iranian okay. regime who are actually bad actors. Okay, another question. Uh, a lot of people close to your organization, close to the bureaucracy, close to the government, have suggested that Canada is at sanctions overload that we don't have the resources to screen and investigate uh, and stop and, and, and take deal with this many people. What's your thoughts on that? Uh, one of the things that we do in order to uh, monitor who's coming into Canada from uh, countries that, that require a visa is use biometrics data. It's actually a fairly efficient process. And the advantage that we have is we have extraordinary partnerships with allies around the world who are able to uh, identify people who belong to different uh, troublesome uh, regimes or organizations. Uh, the United States Department of National Defense is, is a good example. Uh, there's no perfect system, though. Uh, we have to get to work to do what we can uh, to have a razor sharp focus on how these uh, measures are going to apply. And then we intend to use our admissibility screening process, including the use of uh, biometrics whenever a person will be seeking to enter Canada to uh, try to catch uh, the people who are rendered inadmissible as a result of the decision that uh, the prime ministers uh, announced earlier today. Uh, we're going to do everything we can uh, to make sure that we prevent the entry of some of these uh, uh, bad actors from Canada. Okay. Uh, I'll sh oh, my apologies. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, 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 that's it. No, that, that's fine. I'm, I, I want to, because we're running out of time, I want to give you time for the other subject. I mean, this is amazing. Two large announcements today. The other subject he announced today was uh, up to a half a million foreign students in Canada will now be able to work potentially much, much longer. They were limited to 20 hours uh, a week of work off campus, except during the summer and the winter holidays. Uh, you've now made a decision. You're going to allow up to half a million students work a lot more. Tell us about that and why it took, took so long. Um, look, this is a, a really important uh, decision that we've uh, taken today. Uh, Canada has had one of the strongest economic recoveries from COVID-19. We recently hit our lowest all-time unemployment rate, but we still have, uh, a few months ago, almost 1 million empty jobs in Canada. You can't walk down Main Street of any community without seeing a Help Wanted sign. Uh, we've got 500,000 international students who have had a limit on the number of hours that they can work at 20 hours. Uh, this, this is a simple and intelligent solution that makes it easier for these 500,000 people to fill gaps in the labor force. This is not just a policy that benefits international students. This is a policy that benefits businesses in our communities that are going to help grow the economy. This is the right kind of decision we should be taking. 
we're going to have it in effect beginning November 15th through to the end of 2023 uh, to see what the impacts are going to be. We'll keep a, a laser focus on the labor market dynamics, but we're going to learn a lot from uh, uh, what happens once we have real world data that explains mm-hmm. uh, how students adjust and how businesses uh, make use of this uh, this new announcement. Okay, great. Because you leave the door open to that, obviously we'll watch how this see uh, watch the uptake on that and see how many people avail themselves of these new rules. I want to thank you very much for speaking with us on both subjects. My pleasure as always. Thank you so much for having me. Joining me now are two members of the Parliamentary Press Gallery. Tana McCharles is with the Toronto Star, and Mia Rabson is with the Canadian Press. Well, both of you, I know you're working on this story, the announcement of new uh, sanctions against the Iranian regime. Uh, Tonda, you wrote an extensive piece on this this week in terms of what the government's thinking was. Uh, what do you make of what was announced today? Well, it seems that they've tried to take an approach that uh, is not under the criminal code, uses Um, you know, immigration measures to block um, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps members and leadership from Canada, from either being in Canada or ever entering Canada. And they're, uh, you know, levying more economic sanctions and some sanctions now under the Magnitsky Act, which targets individuals for human rights violations. I think what they're trying to do is make it a targeted effort. But at the same time, you know, the prime minister has said that they've accepted that there are some 10,000 people that might come under this. Now, are some of those people in Canada? We don't know. There's a lot of detail we didn't hear today. They're using a a, a provision in the IRPA, the the Immigration Refugee Protection Act, to essentially make people inadmissible under reasons on grounds of terrorism. But, you know, at what point do they actually get to target 10,000 people? You know, where is that list coming from? How do you verify who is on that list? And are, are any of them here? We didn't get answers on any of that today. Um, experts I've talked to this afternoon say that uh, the money that they're putting into enforcement now is a good thing. It's very much needed that Canada right now is very uh, handicapped on its ability to find out who's got uh, assets held in Canada to freeze their bank accounts, uh, to freeze those assets. Um, If they're going to put more money into tracking that kind of thing at Global Affairs and at the RCMP, people say that's a welcome thing. But uh, look, I think there are a lot of details we don't know about how this is rolling out. And Mm -hmm. uh, the prime minister said we'll get more next week. Yeah, I asked that question to uh, Sean Fraser, the immigration minister, about uh, sanction fatigue. Some people, as you mentioned and in your article this week, about does Canada have the capacity? And he said, well, a lot will be, he seems to put a lot of confidence in biometrics. Um, Mia, what do you make of the measures? And then we can talk about the politics of this. Well, I mean, the government had to do something. They have been getting hammered in recent days. The pressure on this has really grown in the last several weeks after the death of a woman in Iran who, by the morality police, that's led to massive uprisings in Iran. And you've seen that in Canada. Last weekend, there was an enormous rally in Toronto, well, Toronto area. And Justin Trudeau was not there. And it was not, his absence was definitely noted. And it sort of set in forth uh, this entire week of just criticism against the government, not doing enough, not listening to the family. It's so the measures themselves are something they had to do. They they seem to be a little bit lacking in detail, and it's almost like they rolled them out today because mm-hmm. they knew they were under pressure that they had yeah. to do something. Christian Freeland, the deputy prime minister, got sort of har- heckled and harassed at a rally that was held on Parliament Hill this week. So I think we're expect we need a lot more detail, but we we did start to see the inkling that the government is finally moving on this. I mean, the plane crash that they are partly responding to was almost three years ago now.
Yeah, a thousand days. We celebrated, or we commemorated mm -hmm. a thousand days since the shooting down of that that airliner. Um, uh, to you, Tonda, what do you make of the politics? Because a lot of people, the opposition party, as, as Mia mentions, especially the opposition conservatives, have been, it's the only subject they've been going on in question period that's not mm -hmm. been inflation. They've carved out uh, two weeks worth of, of solidly hammering the government. Do we really know why it took the government so long to make these decisions? Well, look, the, the Parliament unanimously in 2018 supported the idea of listing the IRGC as a terrorist entity. But it's a lot harder, perhaps, to implement some of these things. And so uh, the, the fact that, you know, they were able to at least pull out some other measures, I think, speaks to they recognize there is an urgency. Um, but it's a lot easier to do, I think, to criticize from the opposite uh, opposition benches than it is to actually implement some of this stuff. And, you know, kudos to the Conservatives for keeping the pressure up. Um, but I think, you know, it was said to me by many people this week that I discussed this with inside government that if it were easy, it would have been done okay. long ago. Uh, yeah. The Conservatives, when they were in government, they didn't do it either. So this is this is a very um, problematic, complex thing. It affects many, potentially many Iranian Canadians as well. Um, but it's good to see some okay. action finally, at least on the enforcement piece. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's uh, let's look at another issue which sort of exploded at the week's end or near the end of the week, and that was this revelation that they originally dug up by Global News, and that is of these um, uh, four years' worth of YouTube videos, uh, political videos, I mean promotional videos, by uh, Pierre Poilievre, but which contain a hidden tag, the hidden tag which links or uh, advertises these videos to groups that are associated with misogynist movement, as a sort of a men's-only movement and possibly some even more virulent uh, uh, misogynist groups. Uh, the Conservative government, uh, the Conservative Party, has uh, said that they looked into it. They've said that a lot of people had access to his videos. They were unable to track down exactly who was responsible, but the tags have been removed immediately. What do you make of the outcry, Mia, what do you make of the outcry? The Liberals raised this and said it's proof that the, the, that the Conservative leader is has been and continues to court extremist groups. Uh, and, and the Conservatives responded in the way they uh, described. What do you make of how it's all playing out? Well, so the Liberals have been trying for months, if not years, to connect Pierre Polyev and the Conservatives to some of these more extremist far-right movements. They, you know, we saw that during the convoy. We've seen it in the months since. And the Conservatives and Pierre Polyev have tried very hard to try and say that they're not. That's not who they are. You know, we had earlier this year there was a picture of Polyev with a known leader, right, far-right leader, and he uh, he sort of disavowed it, but without. Uh, without really sort of apologizing, and his response was sort of, well, I know, I, I, yeah, I did that, but it's it's a problem for you guys as well. You see that again here. The liberals are trying to make this connection, and this decision, this tag, basically handed them a gift by saying, well, you actually tagged your own videos targeting these people that you say that you're not, uh, you're not connected to. So it's a big problem for Polyev. His response was, was, uh, not as much of a sort of denial as people maybe were expecting. They started to do an investigation and then they said, well, there were so many people working there, we couldn't possibly figure out who it is, which just leaves the door open that it was him, that it was Polyev himself. So the liberals are going to continue to use this. You saw some really strong statements from them even today about this. Um, it is not going to go away easily for the for the conservative mm -hmm. leader. You can expect that this is something the liberals will be bringing up again and again and again. Okay, Tonda, your thoughts on how this has played out? 
Well, I think the Conservative leader's office would be wise to uh, actually put it to bed immediately and find out who actually did uh, put that tag on. It can't be that difficult. His, he is a master of social media himself, and they have had many, I think, uh, months of campaigning to understand who exactly they're targeting their messages to. So politically, he'd be very wise to put it to bed really quickly and find out and not just drop the pro because it looks like a shrug. And if he wants to appeal to a, a, a big swath of voters that polls already show he has trouble with, i.e. women, um, he, needs to, he needs to deal with it. Women uh, will not look kindly on that. And so I think politically it's, a, it's something he's got to get on top of. I think, you know, he's had some good moments um, in the last three to four weeks since he's been leader of the opposition, good okay. speeches. But when it comes to thinking on his feet, he's shown that he's not as agile. Okay, on that note, uh, obviously we will revisit some of these uh, issues. I want to thank both of you. I want to wish you a happy uh, Thanksgiving weekend. Yeah, same, same to, you, to you, Martin. Well, Alberta has a new premier. On Thursday night, Daniel Smith completed a political comeback and won the leadership of Alberta's United Conservative Party. She's expected to be sworn in next week, and she's vowing to act decisively on her political priorities. It is time for Alberta to take its place as a senior partner in building a strong and unified Canada. No longer will Alberta ask permission from Ottawa to be prosperous and free. We will not have our voices silenced and censored. We will not be told what we must put in our bodies in order to work or to travel. We will not have our resources landlocked or our energy phased out of existence by virtue signaling prime ministers. Joining me now is Laurie Williams. She's a political scientist at Calgary's Mount Royal University and a longtime observer of Alberta politics. Uh, Professor Williams, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my great pleasure. Now, Danielle Smith, in her victory speech, she said that no longer will Ottawa or anyone else dictate what Albertans can put in their bodies or how Albertans can deal with their resources, et cetera, et cetera. She continued that messaging and she promised to make her controversial Alberta Sovereignty Act one of the first orders of business. Um, that's the act that will supposedly allow Alberta to basically ignore federal legislation if the government feels it's not in the province's interest. Tell us where this is all going. I mean, a lot of the other leadership candidates who are against the Sovereignty Act, where do you see it going? Well, it raises a few uh, questions. So as things stand right now, certainly the folks that, that voted Daniel Smith into office are supportive of being much tougher on Ottawa than currently they are. And a lot of Albertans agree with some of those things, particularly around managing resources, um, and, and our economy and just sort of being appreciated as a, as a contributor to, to the country. But Danielle Smith is far afield uh, of mainstream Albertans. Uh, there isn't broad support. In fact, there's quite a bit of opposition to the Alberta Sovereignty, Sovereignty Act. A lot of questions about what it's going to contain. And Danielle Smith is going to have to convince first her caucus and then Albertans in general 
that this is actually a winning strategy. It, it remains to be seen whether this is going to have to be moderated or, or watered down mm -hmm. to get caucus support or in light of the next uh, provincial election and whether whether that's going to alienate the folks that, that voted for her yesterday. Well, that sets up the next question. That was about party unity. We know that uh, Ms. Smith has held her first caucus meeting this morning. Uh, she's also supposedly sent a letter out to each and every MLA, uh, Conservative MLA, UP. PC MLA. Uh, she's saying she wants to sit down for at least half an hour with each of them and chat with them. She's saying that the politics is a blood sport and she's inviting everyone to bury the hatchet now and to come together. How much of a challenge does she have? It's a very significant challenge because remember these are two parties. Uh, the Wild Rose Party and the Progressive Conservative Party brought together by Jason Kenney in order to win an election and defeat the NDP. Um, that was enough for a time to bring them together. Uh, but they, they're, the people that were in these parties fought one another across the legislature. They uh, profoundly disagree with one another on a lot of issues, uh, whether it be um, social conservatism versus libertarianism, rural versus urban, uh, progressive versus uh, further to the right. Uh, I mean, there are all kinds of divisions between and amongst them. And, and we saw those divisions in the leadership race. You just alluded to the fact that five out of the seven candidates who are members of the party uh, and in the legislature, all of them currently, uh, five of them have opposed the Sovereignty Act and have pledged not to support it as as described by by uh, Danielle Smith. She's going to have to somehow get sign off on, on the bureaucrats to put the wording together, which could be another barrier Mm -hmm. to to doing this and and so uh, to me i just i, I mean I'm already hearing stories about people that are are wondering whether danielle smith is is the person that they want to lead them into the next election mm -hmm. and now she's probably gonna have a honeymoon phase for a certain period of time and an opportunity to try to win over party members and and uh, more broadly albertans um but for the party members the minute those polls start to dip down and it looks like okay. they might have a tough time in the next election I think the knives are going to come out again. Well, let's look at that. You just set it up perfectly, and that is the next election is as early as next spring. Um, a few months ago, the polls were showing that Rachel Notley and her NDP were comfortably ahead of the UPC, which was doing very badly. We've seen a lot of different polls over the last few weeks and months, though, saying a lot of different things. Um, some people saying that they're now neck and neck. Others saying, though, that a lot of ordinary Albertans really have a problem with Danielle Smith as leader of the UPC. What do you make of the polls? Well, there are polls indicating that uh, a majority of Albertans, a significant majority of Albertans, think that Danielle Smith will be terrible for the province. Um, of course, she's going to have to convince them otherwise and has a bit of time and a lot of money to do that. Uh, there are also polls that indicate that taking aside raw numbers, the, the, the entire provinces as a single constituency, as we saw last night in, in the leadership vote, um, she has to, to win enough seats in key battlegrounds around the province and uh, polls are showing that she will not be able to win Calgary. She might have troubles in Red Deer, Lethbridge, Banff, Airdrie, and even Fort McMurray. And if that's the case, then it's hard to see a path to a majority government. So just as she's got to bring around the, uh, the lukewarm or even uh, uh, skeptical members of her own caucus and party, she also has to bring around the mainstream Albertans that uh, may once have been conservatives and are wondering if that's that's really where they've got a home now. Okay, well, we no doubt will speak again as we watch this unfolding story, as well as the relations with Ottawa. Thank you very much for taking the time. Oh, thank you. 
Canada's job numbers have taken a turn for the better. The economy created 21,000 new jobs in September. Now that's a modest turnaround from the 100,000 jobs that were lost in the previous three months. And the national unemployment rate has fallen to 5.2%. Joining us now to go over the latest figures is Ted Mallet. He's the director of the economic forecasting team at the Conference Board of Canada. Mr. Mallet, thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Okay, well, uh, first of all, what do you make of these employment figures? Obviously, any increase in employment is good, but how do they fit into the overall economic picture? Well, we see these numbers as basically a correction to what happened in August. Uh, there were about 30,000 jobs that were uh, looked like they were lost in the education sector in August, and they, they, they magically came back in September. And uh, StatsCan survey is, uh, you know, it doesn't cover all households, so they have to kind of, uh, run it through some calculations and smoothing and, and, and so on. So there is some variations, uh, especially by sector, and this is what we found. But generally, uh, the numbers show that for September, we haven't had any real net employment increase since February or March hmm. of this year. So basically, it's been flat for, uh, for, for the past six months or so. Okay, well, I'll put then something to you, because if it's flat and not much of an increase, maybe this question is not relevant. But we've been told by a lot of economists that being laser focused these days on inflation in a sort of perverse twist, economists are concerned that a lot of job creation could create more inflation, more inflationary pressures, as they call it. Uh, where does that fit in? Well, that's right. We saw some uh, increase in employment uh, through the early part of the year, and it's tapered off uh, a fair bit. So a minor correction in September. Uh, the, the good news is that inflation looks like it is moderating. Uh, it doesn't look like it when you look at it year over year. Uh, you know, comparing prices, uh, say, in, in August versus what they were in August uh, 2021. But uh, uh, the, the past couple of months, uh, at least on the inflation side, has been fairly modest in, in the, the, the rate of new increases, because most of the increases were happening earlier in the year. Uh, so, you know, we, we expect that uh, the tapering of employment is perhaps helped caused by, uh, you know, the concern about prices, and we know that demand is, is uh, tapering off as well. So, you know, these, these are indicators that, uh, you know, perhaps the, the Bank of Canada's policies of, of increasing in, uh, interest rates to try to tame inflation by uh, by reducing demand pressures in the economy seem to be uh, perhaps working. And uh, we'll, we'll see over the next coming months whether that's going to be sustained. Well, that was my other question then, because we heard the uh, governor of the Bank of Canada, Tiff Macklem, yesterday in a speech in Halifax. He made it abundantly clear that the bank is counting on proceeding with another interest rate increase on October 26. And he also made it sound like their intention was possibly for further rate increases. You're, are you expecting that as well? Well, certainly uh, uh, the, the, the central banks are going to be talking uh, inflation down as much as they can. Uh, the, the, the postures, the language they use is just as important as the, uh, the numbers that they, they put out uh, in terms of the, uh, the benchmark rates and so on. We certainly know the, uh, the U.S. Fed is talking very hard on that. There's some question whether uh, you know, the, the, uh, maybe they're trying to scare people uh, to you know, reduce demand uh, more so than maybe they, they'll have to, maybe they can ease up on their, their okay. plans to increase on, on rates. Okay, last question, and I know this might be a complex one, but um, with, you know, basically you're describing a sort of a stagnant job situation and inflation, not what it was a few months ago, but still a concern. Are we in a recession? I think we're, we're in a period of, of basically uh, stopped growth. And uh, really the, the demand issues uh, 
uh, people wanting new products and so on, creating pressures on the supply chains, uh, and uh, uh, and then all the kind of impacts on on uh, businesses along the way uh, are starting to work their way through the system. So you know, we we don't think. I mean, it's about 50/50 chance that uh, we'll end up with a technical recession, but it's uh, pretty well uh, assured that we'll have a period of uh, very slow growth, or at least no growth, uh, going on over the, uh, the next few uh, months or quarters. Okay, Ted Mallow, thank you very much for speaking with us, and we'll keep in contact. My pleasure. Thank you. There was good news on Friday for Canada's veterans and for those concerned about preserving an important part of Canadian history, the D-Day invasion site of Juneau Beach. The beach in Normandy, France, is the site of the Second World War landings, which were a turning point in the war against Nazi Germany, and where hundreds of Canadian soldiers lost their lives. There is already a commemorative museum at the site, but a proposed French condo development threatened another part of the site. Today, Veterans Affairs Minister Lawrence McCauley announced that the Canadian government will be spending $4 million in collaboration with a local municipality to buy the land from the private developer and to preserve the site. Every Remembrance Day, hundreds of Canadians, including veterans, school, school children and dignitaries, visit the site to pay their tribute to Canada's sacrifice. Well, that's it for this edition of Primetime Politics. I'm Martin Stringer. Have a great weekend.